I'm Marshall Kozlov. And I'm Mike Duran. Welcome back to Counterbalance. So, Marshall, today we've got my good friend and co-author, Tony Padron here. Hello, Tony. Hi, Mike and Marshall. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Marshall, Tony, uh, Tony, as I said, he's my good friend. Uh, I talk to him about the Middle East all the time. Um, And we got together, we we occasionally get together and co-author pieces as we just did. Uh, on this piece that came out in Tablet Magazine this week called The Realignment, which is uh, argues that the Biden administration is actually the third term of Barack Obama on the Middle East. And that's, in our view, not a good thing. Um, and Tony is a uh, senior fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracy. Uh, he is originally... Uh, Lebanese. He was born Lebanese, but he's a naturalized uh, um, uh, American. And Tony, what else do I need to tell the world about you? It's it's generally that I write about um, the Levant, meaning Lebanon, Syria, and uh, Hezbollah in particular, and of course, U.S. policy uh, as it relates to the Levant and to the geopolitics of the Levant. And you generally agree that that um, my sense of humor is better than yours, right? This um, is something we can... I think this is universally acknowledged, so yes. I, I, okay, I am, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. I want, to, I want to establish that right here at the beginning before we go okay. any further. Okay. And, and now that we've established the critical background details and framing for the piece, I want to start with this because I feel a little disconcerted at the title of this article. It's called The Realignment, which is also the name of the other podcast I host. I was not asked for any citation or any reference or any previews or anything like that. So I'm going to open discussing here, why is this piece called The Realignment? Well, so The Realignment refers to the concept that uh, separately, Mike uh, and I and... uh, Uh, Our friend uh, Lee Smith also, uh, in the second Obama term, had developed to explain what was then going on with the uh, negotiations over the Iran deal. And at the time, we were saying this was uh, each individually, right? So we were saying, no, what uh, this is, it's not a non-proliferation agreement. This is something bigger. This is something that's far more comprehensive and not in the sense of the joint comprehensive plan, like meaning really comprehensive. And we started to uh, see how Obama's policies in the region were tied to his negotiations with Iran and how those things fit together. Um, And uh, and we agreed that... uh, you know, that what this amounted to, in effect, was actually a realignment of U.S. interests in the region with those of Iran and away from uh, America's traditional alliances in the region, namely with Saudi Arabia, Israel, and to to an extent, Turkey as well. So that was um, the foundation of, of, uh, of our understanding of Obama's 
vision of what he wanted to do in the Middle East and the role of the JCPOA or the, or the Iran deal, as, as it's known, um, played in that, in that vision. So when we came again now with the Biden administration and we saw this happening, there's a, there's a replay of it. And a lot of people were not quite sure. I mean, a lot of people had not really understood what Obama had done to begin with. And now they were adding another layer of misunderstanding by saying, well, let's see what the Biden administration does, you know, because you have people like Tony Blinken and you have people like Jake Sullivan and you have Joe Biden himself. And these people are not Barack Obama. Uh, and so obviously they have choices and things that they want to do that are separate from the previous administrations. And we said, no, 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 pay attention. These guys are doing the exact same thing. And it's the com to complete what Obama had started. And what Obama had started has nothing to do with the, with the negotiation over the nuclear program. It went a lot beyond that. And it was a matter of shifting America's alliances and posture in the region away from traditional allies towards a realignment with Iran. Yeah, you know, uh, Marshall, one of the things um, that really struck me uh, was I, I was having lunch um, uh, about a month, a month and a half ago um, with a good friend of mine who is uh, extremely well-versed uh, on uh, the Middle East and Washington and so forth. And I mentioned to him that Biden was just following in the footsteps of um, Obama. And, and he said, oh, well, we really don't know that. Uh, we don't know that yet. It's really too early to tell. We have to wait and see. And my, my feeling was it's already really late. Um, they've been, you know, because they, they came in immediately uh, and put the squeeze on Saudi Arabia which was which was right out of their agenda, um, and it it surprised me um, to talk to somebody who basically had maybe not an identical worldview with me, but somebody who's got a very similar worldview, and was reading it so much differently, and 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 that that really convinced me that that we needed to um, we need to we needed to sit down and make the case in a very comprehensive way, um, so that so that everyone could see what, what, what we were talking about. It's been re the thing, one of the things really remarkable to me about our debate right now is that these guys, the Biden administration, which it, which is except for, you know, even including by actually Biden himself, they're all, they're all former Obama officials or most of them are, they're making the same arguments that they made in 2015 as if, as if, Nothing has changed, as if they haven't, as if these arguments haven't been roundly refuted. I mean, I think, I think, soundly refuted, and um, it, it's amazing the extent to which we don't really have a foreign policy debate anymore. I mean, so many of the elements on the left just parrot whatever the administration says, as if you know they'll say things on Tuesday as if whatever happened on Monday didn't happen. You know, they'll say, they'll say one thing on Monday and then the opposite on Tuesday, um, and, the, and they pretend that they never even heard it on Monday. It's, 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 it's shocking to me, actually. What's so fascinating about all this is, in the piece specifically, you lay out a really strong eight to 10-year history of this, and you referred to the Obama foreign policy in the Middle East as an experiment 
that essentially the Biden team is picking up. Can we just define what that experiment was, especially in the context of probably the first term of the Obama administration? I'll start with you, Tony. So the 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 term that you just quoted, you know, the experiment that that was suspended, that actually comes from an article that the current uh, special envoy uh, for Iran is uh, Robert Malley wrote in Foreign Affairs in two thousand and nineteen. And that article, uh, uh, both Mike and I, as we were sort of reviewing this material, saw as a very pivotal uh, article because it it was a systematic summary of the Obama vision uh, and and the Obama what Obama tried to do, what he wasn't able to complete, and what should now be done. It was a template. It was basically a program. Uh, it was the Obama program, right? It's not the Rob Malley program. It's the Obama program, as systematized by Rob Malley. And who uh, is Rob Malley, real quick? So Robert Malley was under Obama, uh, also uh, a sort of an Iran czar or a Gulf Affairs and Iran czar, and then he was directly involved in in uh, the negotiations for the JCPOA. Robert Malley uh, is a known figure from even from the Clinton years when he was involved in the uh, in the uh, peace process. Uh, he's a controversial figure because he's uh, extremely, you know, through his organization outside of governments, extremely close to uh, you know uh, groups like Hamas and Hezbollah, the Syrian regime, and so on and so forth. Because they talk to them all the time, and and so on and so forth. So it was an issue in 2009 when the Obama administration tried to include him in the first administration, and there was a lot of uh, blowback in Congress at the time. But then in the second term, in 2014, he comes in and he sees the, the negotiation with the Iranians through the finish line while simultaneously also conducting direct negotiations with the Russians over Syria. So he was a very high profile figure, a point man for Obama in the Middle East on the most sensitive issues of Iran and the related issue of Syria. Uh, and now he's brought back to to do the same thing, right? I mean, in the exact same role to see to revive the JCPOA that uh, President Trump had buried and lock it in. I mean, that's that's the function, um, and you know, remove the sanctions and do all of that. So, it, it, so he, him writing that foreign affairs um, uh, essay was important because he was, uh, again, he was not conveying his own thoughts. Robert Malley was systematizing Obama's program and both looking, looking back and looking forward to what needs to be completed. And he described what Obama had done as, a, as an experiment that was suspended halfway. It was suspended, why? Because Donald Trump got elected and they couldn't, lock in what they wanted to do. It wasn't yet finished. And what is that wasn't yet finished? It's kind of turning the U.S. ship of state that 180 degrees away from what it used to be with its alliances in the region to where it's supposed to be uh, under Obama's vision, which is uh, in, in, uh, in much more and much sort of closer relationship or a realignment uh, with, with Iran, which to their mind means that um, the, the role of the United States prior to that was predicated on supporting 
U.S. allies against Iran, and that always led for entangling the United States militarily in the region. And the only way to, to stop that is to kind of distance ourselves from our allies and elevate Iranian interest so that there is what they called, uh, that there would be a, 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 a new balance, a new equilibrium for a new order in the Middle East. And um, when we say... Uh, when we say elevate Iranian interests, what we're talking about um, most specifically uh, are Iranian interests in uh, Iraq, Syria, Yemen, and Lebanon, and also Iranian interests with respect to the to the nuclear program. Uh, so there, there's a, in a sense, uh, I don't want to get too much into the weeds on this. Uh, and we didn't we didn't really go into it in the article uh, because the article is already quite lengthy. But in, in, what, what they're really arguing is that the United States should uh, should do a deal, a kind of grand bargain with Iran, um, where the United States sits at the table with Iran, like it's doing in the JCPOA negotiations, and then and then the United States consults with its allies. Uh, with its traditional allies, Turkey, Israel, Saudi Arabia, um, when it's convenient for the United States. And when it says consult, the consulting is going on like the consultant, when we say consult, the consulting is going on like it's going on between Saudi Arabia and the United States now in Yemen, where the United States says, get the hell out. So it's really a, it's really a, it, 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 it's really a, um, a very serious tilt in the direction of Iran and away from allies. Now they, but, but they, they hide it just a, just one little, um, one little, um, note about that. They don't admit this openly. They don't admit they, they have a, a set of, of tricks, communication tricks by which they hide the extent to which they're intending to tilt toward Iran. So the one, one of them is, uh, uh, um, dialogue, diplomacy, and de-escalation. These are the three Ds. Whenever you hear, the, these are phrases that they say all the time. Whenever, whenever, whenever you hear, I, 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 was, I, I amused myself yesterday. I tweeted last night before I went to bed. I, I was li listening to Jen uh, Saki, the White House uh, press secretary, uh, talking about Israel and, the, um, uh, and Hamas. And she said, you know, we want dialogue, de-escalation, and diplomacy. Um, the minute you hear them talk, any one of those, dialogue, diplomacy, de-escalation, but especially all three of them together, what that really means is we're moving away from our ally and toward Iran. And we, we, we go through some, some details in there. Yeah, some and examples. I want to get to... I want to get to Israel in a second, but something you also both really did at this, something that I appreciate at the start of the article was just defining the actors and the players, because that's the key part to the debate thing you've referenced here. So it'd be great for you all to define what the actual debate is about the nature of this administration, because from one perspective, it seems that there are those who see, no, Tony Blinken and Jake Sullivan are different than the Obama folks who really let it off. So can you just define who the players are and then articulate in good faith, of course, what the actual debate around the intentions of the administration are? So I'll, I'll let Mike uh, 
go in in detail into this, but the one thing I will note here is that just as we referenced uh, Robert Malley's foreign affairs article, there's another article that we reference, uh, for another foreign affairs article that we reference in the piece, which was penned by Jake Sullivan during the campaign in uh, May, I believe, 2020. And um, if our contention essentially in the piece is that if you hold these two articles next to each other, um, there is no daylight in between, right? They, they are effectively the same article. Meaning what? Meaning Robert Malley laid down the template of the Obama vision, and Jake Sullivan took it, accepted it 100%, and then laid out in Diplo speak how that's going to happen under a Biden administration. Uh, and, and, and to be to be, you know, not to oversimplify, but that's exactly w what it was. So what Mike was just talking about, you know, diplomacy, dialogue, de-escalation, none of these concepts, um, th these concepts, they, they don't come out uh, out of thin air, right? They, they, are, uh, they, they are terms that have very precise reference in the experience of the Obama administration with Iran in the region, specifically in Syria. This is how they elevated Iranian interest in the Syria, in Syria, and they used those terms to mask that elevation in acceptable, you know, non non-threatening uh, uh, language. I mean, who can be against de-escalation? You know, we want to stop the violence. There is no military solution. Who wants? Uh, you know, are you for war or are you for diplomacy? Which is better? You want diplomacy. Uh, isn't it better to have, for humanitarian reasons, to be able to save lives, to stop the violence, and, and engage in diplomacy, and, and so on and so forth, and dialogue, right? So then what happens is that Jake Sullivan takes that concept, puts it in the Foreign Affairs article, and lays out the program that the Biden administration is going to take in terms of how it approaches its allies and forces them to dialogue, de-escalate, with Iran, meaning to stop com uh, con um, resisting Iranian encroachment on their national security and their and their interests, and to uh, basically come to the table and uh, and and basically effectively accept uh, Iran's position as a privileged interlocutor with the United States. Um, so, so, quick that, thing, yeah. quick, yeah, and quick thing to follow up on that, which is, so if. The Malley thought and Sullivan's piece are effectively the same, building upon one another. Where do folks who think there is a difference, what are they arguing then, right? So like, what's the, what's the other side of this? I'll throw that to you, Mike. Yeah. Um, let, me, let me just say, uh, first of all, that uh, Tony has a freakish power. Like if, if you said to me, what is Tony's superpower? Uh, I, I would tell you, he has uh, nearly a photographic memory. I, I don't know what it is, uh, maybe uh, what the right term for it is. Um, but especially with regard to words. And he can remember words and phrases. And it's like they have a DNA. So something like dialogue, de-escalation, and, and, and diplomacy. And I'll be talking to him and I'll, and I'll mention that they said this in Yemen and he'll say, yeah, that's just like Syria in 2015. And then, uh, and he can see 
he remembers all these phrases and quotes and things. And when they come, uh, you, you, you know, it's like in a, it's like in a movie when, uh, when, when people, when a, when a guy thinks that that two people are not connected and then they, they both tell him the same weird anecdote and he realizes that, Oh, they're actually connected. Uh, Tony can connect up. Uh, Tony can tell you where somebody is getting their thinking originally. Cause he can, in his mind, he can trace back the phrases. And so one of the things that we've done very carefully is we've gone back through Obama's interviews and speeches, all those interviews he did with Jeffrey Goldberg and so on. And all these concepts that you find in, in Rob Malley and that you find in Jake Sullivan, are, uh, they all go back, they all trace back to Obama's speeches and, uh, and particularly his, his, um, his interviews. But then when Sullivan presents it, he's, the, Sullivan's article is, a new, you know, the America's opportunity in the Middle East, like he's come up with some new idea. And, uh, and, and we know, because we've been tracking this for years, that there's absolutely zero that's new there. Uh, it's just, uh, he's just calling the play for the current moment, but it's the same play that they've been running, uh, that they've been running since whenever. So something that also interests me is you have this good line, and I'll throw this to you first, Mike where you're talking about the Obama experiment in the context of the JCPOA, but you also mentioned that if the experiment is back, then the worst is yet to come. Could you all just both expand on what the worst is yet to come part of this? What is coming down the pipeline if this is the framework that's been applied again? I, I think the genius of, of Obama, the smartest thing that he did in this whole thing, what we're talking about here... When we say the realignment, Obama had a concept of a new regional order. And, and the, the opposite of the realignment, the, re, the realignment is a concert system where, where the United States is in a partnership with Iran and Russia. That's to, to, stabilize, the, to stabilize the Middle East. That means elevating Iran and, and, uh, um, and uh, demoting America's traditional allies. The opposite of that is multilateral containment, where the United States sees itself as the leader of a coalition uh, that is in, 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 uh, in serious competition with an alternative coalition, which it is seeking to, to, to weaken, and it wants to create a, a, a regional order that is based on its coalition. The United, under, under realignment, Obama has uh, Obama and then now Biden, they have abandoned that conception. They're not trying to build a new, they're not, not trying to build an order on the, uh, uh, that looks after their interests and the interests of their, uh, of their coalition. They're trying to pull back from the region and cut a deal with the worst actors in the, um, in, in the region. And that's why the worst is yet to come. So, so the, the, the genius of what, of what Obama did was he sold this idea of a new regional order. He never admitted that, that that was what he was up to. He never gave, uh, he never gave a major keynote speech called a new order in the Middle East. He sold it through the JCPOA in the Iran nuclear deal. And he sold the nuclear deal as a narrow arms control agreement. But if you look closely at what the nuclear deal does, first of all, it doesn't stop Iran from getting a bomb at all. The nuclear program is proceeding even under the, the restrictions uh, of, the, uh, of the JCPOA. 
And, and, and secondly, the JCPOA ends all sanctions on Iran. So the primary, non, the primary um, non-military weapon that we would use to contain Iran, economic sanctions, it obliterates. They, now, they don't admit that that's what it does. So there's a lot of smoke and mirrors, uh, and mirrors here. But the thing is that Iran understands, the Iranians understand perfectly well that the United States is pulling back and tilting toward them. And so they are pushing everywhere in the region out. They're, they, even while our, our it, it's, it's actually outrageous and there should be more uh, outcry about it. Our, our negotiators are sitting in Vienna, um, not even directly with the Iranians because the Iranians have refused to sit at the table with us. And we accepted that ridiculous demand, um, which already weakened us, made us look weak, made us look like we're really eager to cut a deal with them and we'll kowtow to whatever demand they make. We're sitting in Vienna um, to go back to the JCPOA, lift all sanctions on Iran, while their proxies in Iraq are attacking our bases, our, our, where, there's, where Americans are, are, are located. No outcry about that. They're lobbing, uh, they're, they're, they're lobbing rockets and missiles into Saudi Arabia from Yemen. And now they're attacking the Israelis. These, uh, the, the, the rockets coming from Gaza into Israel are Iranian rockets. And Hamas is openly, Hamas and uh, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, they are, they are openly admitting their, uh, their uh, reliance and, and alliance uh, their reliance on Iran and their alliance with it. So uh, I- Iran is pushing all through the region because it knows it can, because because Biden is pulling back and offering this and offering this to them. So when we say the worst is yet to come, you know, Iran is going to take every concession that the United States gives it, every vacuum the U.S. creates and says, "Here, Iran, go ahead and fill it." They're going to take that and they're going to demand more in the way that they're demanding it now by by empowering their proxies to attack our allies. And then when, and then, sorry, just one last word. And then when their proxies do attack our allies, what do we say? Oh, diplomacy, dialogue, and de-escalation. So yeah, so just a quick comment on that. When uh, it's true, Obama never held a keynote uh, address to the nation and where he laid out this program. But there is a, there was a fundamental dishonesty about it all along because they were throwing crumbs in the media while saying, oh, no, 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 this is all just non-proliferation. Wouldn't it be better if we just kind of put the nuclear issue in a box and then who knows what kind of possibilities this opens in Iran for moderation and et cetera, et cetera. In the meantime, however, they're throwing, this is, this is again, separate from actions. This is still on the level of rhetoric. They're still throwing hints of, well, you know, it will lead to this and our allies should adapt to change and we shouldn't be actually against Iran and Iran should have, they should, our allies should share the neighborhood with Iran. Iran's equities, quote unquote, which is a term that Obama used, should be respect, and he used it in reference to Syria. Meaning, what? What, is the, what does it mean that the United States respects Iranian equities? Let's parse that for a second. Uh, first of all, what are the equities of Iran in Syria? Equities of Iran in Syria, uh, it's a euphemism for maintaining a pro-Iran regime whose function is to act as strategic depth and logistical conduit for Hezbollah in Lebanon, to aim missiles at Israel. That's what the function of Syria is in the alliance system of Iran. 
the United States comes out, the U.S. president comes out and says, we recognize this. We officially legitimize this Iranian interest, that, the, that Iran has the U.S. thumbs up on maintaining a pro-Iranian dictator that has slaughtered 500,000 people, okay, in order to do what? For Iran to continue to be able to have a, an uninterrupted logistical line to a terrorist organization in Lebanon that aims missiles at Israel. That's what Obama recognized as equities. So they throw these terms there and nobody questions them about what they mean. But if you look, so, so there's a lot of deception involved in what they were selling and how they were selling. And that goes exactly directly to the point of what's to come. Because as they were talking, it was like, well, this is not our money that we're giving to the Iranians, it's their money. And by the way, paying the Iranians, that does nothing because they can continue to support proxies on the cheap. Just think about that. We're going to give Iran hundreds of billions of dollars, okay? And that somehow does not affect Iran's ability to project power in the region, which incidentally we are legitimizing and recognizing as completely okay under U.S. Uh, a sort of uh, with a U.S. Uh, blessing. I mean, it was uh, the, 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 the consequences of what they were saying and doing at the time basically lit the Middle East on fire for the, for the previous decade. Trump comes in, puts it, you know, uh, uh, t- takes the U.S. out of the deal, shut, intensifies the sanctions, tries to bankrupt them, goes after um, the number two guy in Iran eliminates him, takes him off, takes him off the, uh, the board. And now they're saying, okay, no, no, now we're going to revive everything else. We're going to pay the Iranians. We're going to remove all the sanctions, right? We're going to acknowledge their interests everywhere in the Middle East with U.S. financing. And then we're going to tell our allies that they have to sit at the table and accept it, right? So what do you think the result is going to be? Well, what you're seeing in Israel is what, it, what the result is. That's the perfect point, because Mike, I want to throw this question to you, because I'm sure everyone is thinking about this conversation in the context of what's just happening in Israel right now this week. So can you just relate the current events aspect of this to the whole idea of putting daylight between the U.S. and Israel and just the broader concepts we're talking about here? Sure. I mean, the the Iranians have developed um, a very effective tool for countering the American alliance system. And uh, let's just call it the IRGC system, or the, the Hezbollah model. You know, they, they reach into, the, the Arab societies are very fragmented for all kinds of historical reasons. Uh, and uh, so they can, it's very easy for a regime like Iran to reach in under the regime's and organize militias on, on, on the ground in, in these areas, particularly Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, uh, but also among the Palestinians. They, they've, they've made a special relationship with Hamas, and then right next to Hamas, they created Palestinian Islamic Jihad, uh, basically. The, the, the Iranians, uh, just like you see in Iraq, they don't, they don't like to create one in Lebanon, they basically created one actor uh, and then delegated everything to that, to Hezbollah. In Iraq, 
in Syria and in and in, in the Palestinians, they like to have they like to have more than one player to work with because they can play them off against each other and uh, and, and 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 leverage them. Uh, so. Uh, Palestinian Islamic Jihad is totally owned by Iran. If, 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 if Islamic Jihad does something, then the order was given directly from Iran and carried out. With regard to Hamas, there's probably um, a little bit more negotiation between Iran and Hamas about what Hamas is going to do. Um, and if Hamas doesn't, uh, th this is the way I imagine it. I mean, we don't have great, you know, clear, great, great visibility on the relations between these organizations. Um, but I also imagine that there are some elements in Hamas that Iran has its hooks into um, uh, more than others. Uh, but also, if, if, if Hamas does not, uh, is not sufficiently subordinate to Iran, Iran just starts attacking Israel with, with Palestinian Islamic Jihad and forcing Hamas to do what it, uh, uh, what it wants. Um, now, in all of these areas where they move in, uh, whether it's through the Houthis in Yemen, Hezbollah in, uh, in Lebanon, or uh, Hamas and Pidge in the Palestinian territories, there's always a local issue. There's always a set of local issues um, that uh, that the locals feel very strongly about emotionally. So it's the it's the um, Iranians piggybacking on you know coming in and and uh, like a like a like a virus. They're using the the local conflict as a host in order to project their um, their power. Now, unfortunately, historically, the United States has never focused on dismantling the Hezbollah model. The United States could do it. In, in, if, if, the pre, if the president of the United States came in, if Joe Biden had come into his team and said, here's what I want, team. I want to dismantle the Hezbollah model across the Arab world. I don't want a large number of American troops on the ground or in harm's way. I want to do it together with our allies. But, th but the strategic goal is to actually dismantle this thing and to make it very costly for anybody to participate in it. That's an achievable goal by the United States. But the United States never does it. Uh, for We don't have to go into all the details about why. Some of them- Let's get a few. Just, I mean, it, I think it'd be relevant. Like what, just what, what's a quick summation of why not? The, Iran is afraid, I'm actually answering the question, but it sound, it'll sound like I'm not. Iran is afraid of two countries. There are two countries- in the in in the Middle East, that that make Iran shake at the knees, and though they are Turkey, and Russia, they if 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 Vladimir Putin if Vladimir Putin gets angry with the with the uh, with the Iranians, they start to get scared. Erdogan went to went to Baku uh, a few months ago after the after Azerbaijan beat Armenia, and and Erdogan read a poem. He read, he read a poem for, in Baku about how the Aras River, this is the river that separates Azerbaijan from Iranian Azerbaijan, because it's, it's the same people ethnically in the country of Azerbaijan and in the northwest province of, uh, of Azerbaijan. And, and, and the poem is just a lament about how the, how the river has separated the two of us. And Erdogan read that poem. And the, and the Iranians went weak at the knees. They went totally weak at the knees. And they, you know, you'll notice that whenever America does something like slaps a sanction on the, 
uh, uh, on the on an Ara- Iranian figure. They say we are the people of resistance. Nothing hurts us. We're impervious. We, you know, we, this means nothing to us. Or they don't even acknowledge it. The, the Iranians have a very, very well-developed sense of power and that if you complain about something, it shows that you're weak and you're vulnerable. So they never complain. You know, when the, the Biden administration thought that when, when they came into power and they said, we want to go back to the JCPOA, they thought the Iranians would run back. But no, the Iranians said, no, we're, not, we're in no rush to get back. We, the fact that we, you destroyed our economy over the last four years, wiped our, you know, our, our energy exports down to almost zero, that means nothing to us. We don't need money. We live on uh, resistance and air. You know? So uh, uh, that's how they deal with the Americans. When Erdogan read a poem, they started protesting. This is a, uh, this is a terrible breach of protocol and so on and so forth. It showed it, because they, they understand that if the Turks wanted to, they could reach right into Iran and shake that regime to its core. The Turks don't want to, but they have that ability. And if Erdogan decided he wanted to do it, he would do it. The Americans are always divided among themselves. We're always, half of our entire foreign policy elite, uh, not, not our entire foreign policy, a big chunk of our foreign policy elite thinks that this realignment is a real clever idea. I mean, this is really sophisticated thinking about how to about how to stabilize the Middle East. Uh, a, a surprising number of people think this. Uh, they won't say it openly because it's politically untenable, but, but that's what they think. And the Iranians, they know us well. They sit there, they've been studying us. They want one thing, the Iranians, one thing, and that's a nuclear weapon. And they, they focus on it, you know, just like your children, your, you, you and your wife, you're, you're, uh, you're busy with your life, and, but your children watch you. And they find out, you know, that if, if you say, um, you know, uh, 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 if you make one, a move in one direction, you know exactly how your dad is going to relate to your mom and so on. And you can get whatever it is that you want simply by, uh, by, by one little complaint or, 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 or one little cry. Um, that's what the Iranians do. They studied us closely. They know what they want. And we are divided among ourselves. And our military does not want to be involved in, uh, our military wants to build major weapon systems to counterbalance China in the, uh, in, in, in the South China Sea. It wants big ships, big army wants, you know, big, big Navy wants big ships, big army wants big uh, movements. And they don't want to monkey around. They don't want to monkey around with dismantling militias in the middle of the Middle East. Uh, So those are just some of the ways. But it's this fact that we're divided among ourselves and that that a big chunk of our foreign policy elite actually has always wanted to cut a deal with Iran. It goes, this goes way back when Reagan, you know, under Reagan, when when Ali North, Ali North, who's, who's not a Democrat, and, 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 and who nobody ever accused of being a, you know, um, uh, uh, um, uh, of, of being a weak little girl, right? He, uh, uh, when he went to Tehran with, uh, uh, not Poindexter, it was McFarlane in 86, they went looking for the moderates in Tehran. That's what they're, the Americans are dying to find the moderates in Tehran. And the Americans know that the moderates in Tehran are there. And the Iranians, they understand this deep longing that, uh, that, that the Americans have for the moderates. And they dangle that possibility in front of us all the time. And we take the bait. No, just, just to, one, of the, one of the reasons why Obama's realignment was, uh, was 
and then the deception and the misdirection was able to uh, to work is because it it piggybacked on an on existing uh, American structures in the region, uh, meaning we, especially since 9-11, the United States had, has embarked on a counter-terrorism focused policy in the Middle East, okay? It was sort of, in 9-11, we kind of put to bed the previous dominant framework for the Middle East, which was the peace process. And we didn't, you know, we didn't bury it, but it sort of took a second uh, uh, a second uh, role to to um, to counterterrorism, and the problem with counterterrorism, especially in its when it, when it ventured into Iraq, is that it put the United States in a position where if it wanted to go after the Sunni uh, jihadi groups, it had to do so with the acquiescence of the dominant regional power in Iraq, Iran, and its local allies. And then it, then it became, this morphed into a de facto, uh, uh, you know, we need the consent of the Iranians to continue to do this so that we can focus on that and not have to worry about sort of uh, our own security with the, I mean, we had our, you know, altercations with the Shia militias, the Sadrists in particular, but we decided let's, Put that aside and focus on the on the jihadis. Now, Team Obama took that model and amplified it and used it to further buttress his realignment theory by saying we can actually far from dismantling the Hezbollah model, we are going to partner with the Hezbollah model to go after jihadis. And see, look, it's a great example of the shared interests we have with Iran in stabilizing the Middle East and so on and so forth. It, I mean, it's, it, was, it, was, it was almost Orwellian in a way. I mean, I know this is a term that's thrown around often, but it, it really was because these militias were out in the Middle East wreaking havoc, often with U.S. direct support or indirect support through the money that they were giving them to stay in the nuclear deal negotiations, right? And they were destroying the Middle East, but the United States was selling it on the, on the basis of, well, this is good to go because our priority needs to be to go after jihadis. And the military was happy with that because the military doesn't, you know, they don't want an additional burden on top of what they're doing with, 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 the, with the jihadis. So there were existing elements of the United States posture in the Middle East that helped Obama build the infrastructure for realignment, sort of to, 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 to repurpose it toward actually a, a formal partnership with Iran, even as it was absolutely wreaking havoc in the Middle East. And, you know, there's, a, there's another dimension to this, too, um, which, which actually, Marshall, gets back to the, uh, the question you asked that I, I never really answered. And that's that... Uh, just as Tony says, there was a there was an infrastructure and a kind of orientation that he could piggyback on to move this toward Iran. Um, there's also you, you, there are also frustrations in the United States with America's allies. Uh, none n none of the none of America's allies is universally, uh, and I'm I'm speaking here primarily of uh, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, and Israel. None, none of them are universally loved uh, by the American public. Um, 
you could say Israel is nearly university level, but there's a, there is a, a very large, uh, uh, you know, a significant segment of the electorate, mainly the progressives, who have a uh, who have a serious problem with Israel. So particularly with the left these days, uh, and there's always been an element of the American foreign policy elite that that is that doesn't like Israel or that is uh, annoyed by Israel. Um, those people who have traditionally seen themselves as the foreign policy mandarins, the people who see themselves as the guardians of the American national interest, they resent the fact that Israel is so popular among the American public that Bibi Netanyahu can go over the heads, can come talk into Congress, for example. That's the greatest example of this. Can go talk to both houses of Congress over the head of a popular president right to the American people, it annoys them. Even, even people who don't like Obama are annoyed when they, when, they, uh, uh, when they see that. With regard to the Saudis, I mean, especially since 9-11, there's a deep, deep frustration with the Saudis in, in, in the American public. Uh, similarly, there's a growing frustration with the, with the Turks. And so what Obama has done, what Obama did, and what the Biden administration is continuing is they are depicting the allies as the problem. And of course, it was Joe Biden who famously said that. And I think it was 2012 when he was speaking at Harvard about Syria. And he said, the allies are the problem in Syria. That's the problem. We have to get away from the, uh, uh, from the allies. Uh, at the time, that was kind of seen as a gaffe. We now can see um, uh, much more clearly if you read the Mali article in Foreign Affairs, if you read the Ben Rhodes, the article that was in the New York Times about uh, uh, Ben Rhodes, the Deputy National Security Advisor for Strategic Communications, you can see that this was, a, this was the, the, what Biden was expressing in 2012 was a widespread view in the, Obama, um, in the Obama administration. And so what that means for Israel today is that the guys who are running the show in Washington don't see Israeli interests and American interests um, as, uh, uh, as closely um, aligned. They don't see them as closely aligned at all. Uh, they see Israel as dragging the United States into conflicts with Iran that are unnecessary. They think that the, the Israeli demands about the Iranian nuclear program are excessive and unattainable. And if the United States tries to um, uh, tries to negotiate on the basis of what the Israelis would consider to be a good deal, um, then it's setting itself up for failure. Um, similarly, with regard to the attitude about all the militias around the um, uh, around the middle the, the Middle East, so what that does, the Iranians can read this very clearly. They have no no illusions whatsoever. And I bet you, if we had the you know. Uh, now that the Iranians, one of the things that Obama did back in, in, in 2015 is he made it accept, acceptable for Americans to sit down with Iranians, with Iranian diplomats. So every time Zarif, the foreign minister of Iran, comes to New York, up there are Robert Malley, John, this is under Trump, John Kerry, even, uh, what's his face, um, pardon me, uh, Senator from uh, Connecticut, Chris Murphy, Chris Murphy, they all meet with Zarif. I'd love, I would love to have the transcripts of those conversations. I'd love to have them. I, and I guarantee you what they're telling them is, hold out. We, 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 we think we have, a, the, you guys and, 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 and we on the Democratic side, we have overlapping interests. 
We can achieve these together. If you can just hold out until after Trump, we'll come back and we'll work together. So they, they, they saw us coming. They know exactly what we want to do. Uh, and, and, and they understand the advantage to them of having an America that is constantly reaching out and begging Iran for a deal. So for the last quick section here, I would just love to hear from both of you in like a minute what the moving forward taking away is for a listener or someone in your audience who is seeing everything you're describing and wondering, wondering what an alternate path would be. Let's start with you, Tony. Uh, so before I before I do that, it's, by the way, it's 2014, not 2012. It was after the ISIS thing with Joe Biden. Anyways, but the, the so, uh, do you see you see how annoying he is? Yes, yeah. so annoying. Uh, yeah. Try writing. Uh, show try, off. try writing. Try writing an article with this guy. Try it. <laughs> so painful. Uh, the takeaway is really just for people to understand that um, what we're to to uh, to understand that they are being sold something that's not actually what the administration is doing. So they are, in a sense, being being, uh, deceived that the United States is aligning itself with a terrorist regime that runs terrorist organizations and that this administration is giving them money. Okay? That's, That's... on, on, on the most in the most blunt way and the result of the United States giving money to a terrorist regime that runs terrorist organizations that have killed Americans incidentally uh, is that the result of this is going to be terrible not just in distant lands for allies that we can kind of say well yeah it sucks for them but we don't really care about whether Saudi Arabia, is now going to have to uh, live with rockets falling on their cities and and a uh, a hegemonic Iran. Same thing for Israel. Well, you know, maybe maybe a little more sympathy for Israel because because of uh, historical um, relations with the United States that that, okay, well, we'll let's try to figure out a way to protect them maybe with, with missile defense systems, but Ultimately, it's, a, it's over there. It's not really something. No, there is going to be repercussions that uh, Americans are going to feel in their daily lives. Uh, the Iranians are uh, China's partner, uh, or not, I, not really partner, kind of proxy or satellite, if you want. And giving Iran access and power to uh, control uh, choke points in the per- in the Persian Gulf, and to threaten choke points in the Red Sea, and uh, uh, and even project it on in the Mediterranean, in the East Mediterranean with Hezbollah, those things affect m- something far beyond the immediate security of United States allies. We're talking about an oil-rich region. We're talking about uh, the encroachment of a global adversary, China, into that region in partnership with Iran that the United States is empowering and uh, whose objective is to basically cut the, cut the United States out. If these guys take control of these choke points and of, of that sort of very vital region, uh, 
the United States uh, interests are going to be very directly uh, impacted. And uh, this is this is on top of the fact that we are actually paying them to do it. That's the biggest insult in all of this. One of the things that we note in the article is that Iran in and of itself is not capable of building an alternate order to the United States. It cannot do, it cannot get rid of the United States on its own. Ironically, it has enlisted the United States assistant in, assistance in dismantling its own order in the region, which has brought the United States security and prosperity for 70 years. That's, that's, a, that's what, an amazing thing. Yeah. So that's, that's what it, the Obama policy that's now being completed, that's what it's dismantling. And, and it, it, if we look back at our history for those 70 years, in comparison to the history of the last 10 years, right, of the kind of disruptions of, of the last 10 years, uh, during the Obama years, meaning, uh, you just take that and amplify it now with the rise of China and kind of imagine what, what lies ahead. And I, I, I would uh, second everything Tony said about China. I think if, if I were to summarize the, the main takeaways here, it's uh, number one, we are handing the Chinese um, a, a club with which to beat us in, uh, 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 in the Middle East. Secondly, I would want people to see that this is as much domestic politics as it is foreign policy. The, as, if you look, one of the reasons they have to hide, they, the Biden administration, have to hide what they're really up to is that if you, if you, if you tease it out carefully and you see what the theory is about how they're gonna stabilize the Middle East, it's not gonna work. It's ridiculous. It's it's as a it, it, um, as a as a foreign policy uh, thesis. It would it would get uh, a, a an undergraduate in foreign policy one hundred and one international relations one hundred and one a B paper. You know, a, a freshman would get a B paper for not uh, for not addressing the obvious counter arguments about what happens when you take a malevolent actor and you hand stuff to him. But it makes a lot of sense as domestic politics because they have a cosmology where uh, they, the progressives, this is, this is, this is the thing. This is the progressive foreign policy is what we're looking at. And the progressives have a cosmology where Mohammed bin Salman in in Saudi Arabia and, and Benjamin Netanyahu in, in, in Israel, they are the, the, they are the evil actors and the evangelical Christians in the United States and the neoconservatives and the, uh, and the, um, and the Jewish Zionists are all teaming together with these uh, malevolent actors in the Middle East to draw the United States into war. And war is caused, the cause of war in the progressive imagination is that alliance. And so this is the way they're using the, the uh, they're using the realignment, the Biden administration is using the realignment with Iran as a way of busting up and delegitimating that alliance. That, so it's a, a, as domestic politics based on a progressive base in order to appeal to a progressive base, it makes a lot of sense. So then you have the problem, okay, I'm, you have the problem, 
I'm, I'm Joe Biden and I'm appealing to the progressives with this foreign policy. How do I sell it to, let's call it the Clintonian wing of the Democratic Party? Well, you sell it with Sullivan and Blinken. And they stand up and they, and they put a Clintonian sort of centrist foreign policy face on what is really a radical progressive agenda that is not going to achieve any of the goals that the Biden administration is placing on it. Um, and that's the function of Sullivan and Blinken is to look like the centrist foreign policy experts. So my message in this article I, I'm, I, I'm speaking primarily, I mean, I'm speaking to anyone who wants to understand what's going on, but I'm, but, I, but I'm asking two groups in particular to wake up. And I would say, wake the hell up, because the, because the, because the clock is running, it, it, it's very late, it's a few minutes to midnight, guys. One group are the Republican foreign policy establishment um, that has been traumatized by the arrival of of the orange emperor, the demon emperor, Donald Trump, who they regard as the destruction of everything that, uh, that they have ever held dear. Um, and now that Trump has left the scene, they are desperate, desperate to bring back what they would call the responsible center back to what we had in the back to what we had in the in, in the cold war where the differences in foreign policy between the republican foreign policy establishment and the democratic foreign policy establishment were not all that great it was you know it was just uh uh, uh 50 shades of gray uh without the w- without the sex right that was a, that's what we used to have so now uh, uh now we don't have that anymore but they're desperate to bring it back and the 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 um, the Sullivan and Blinken types, they're smart guys. They're smart guys. There are some things they're very, very good at. They're not good at coming up with theories about how to actually stabilize the Middle East. But they're very good at coming up with ideas that will split and fracture the Republican foreign policy elite. And so when they when they come into power immediately and they then they and they resurrect the Khashoggi uh, uh, case, and they start hammering Mohammed bin Salman on the basis of uh, Khashoggi. The all the uh, uh, a very large number of significant Republican foreign policy experts and including foreign, uh, Republican senators say, "Yes, yes, that's right. We have to stand up for American values, and we have to take down our ally Saudi Arabia because they're not good enough." For us, and so uh, uh, you know, a, 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 on, on issue by issue around the Middle East, these guys, in uh, with a goal of realignment, give a values justification for what they want to do, and the and the Republican foreign policy elite, some of it goes toward them, in 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 this dream of resurrecting the responsible center. The other group that I'm saying that I'm saying, hey, wake the hell up, guys, are the uh, are are Zionist Jews, in particular Democrats, who also want to believe that there's this responsible bipartisan center that's going to look after uh, uh, after Israel, and they desperately want to believe it. And Sullivan and Blinken, they know who these they know who they are, who those people are. They know what they want to hear, and they give them the rhetoric that they want to hear. And then they go home and they say, "Oh, I can rest assured. Yes, uh, yes." It looks sometimes like when 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 Biden takes an even-handed position between Hamas and Israel, it looks like he's carrying out the foreign policy of Ilhan Omar. But I know 
I know that that Jake and 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 Tony are there, and I know that Jake and Tony understand my concerns, and and they're and they're buying it. So, uh, guys, Republican establishment, foreign policy people, and uh, uh, and Jewish Zionists, wake the hell up. I'm a huge fan of going out on top, and I think uh, your wake the hell up combined with a slightly dated Fifty Shades of Grey reference is the perfect <laughs> way to do that. So thank you so much for coming, when Mike. You, when uh, you, Marshall, thank you, Tony. Marshall, when you take a little jab at me like that and you say, Mike, Look, you're the old guy. it's 2012 over again. That's Mike, okay. You know, That's when you okay. Take a little jab, when you take a little jab at me like that, you're not going out on the top, on top here. You're going out on a low note, on a low note. Uh, well, yeah, either way, uh, thank you so much, everyone, uh, especially Mike, you're here every week. So, Tony, thank you for um, joining us. Thank you. And a uh, huge thank you to Hudson for hosting this conversation. Obviously, you can go to Hudson.org to learn more about the podcast. You can go to Tablet to read this really excellent piece by Mike and Tony. This conversation was incredibly helpful, and the piece is just even more detailed, so I cannot recommend it enough. We'll see you next week.